So I've had Herbie, it's gonna be six years. Six years next uh, month. Yeah. And you got Chico? Uh, two years ago. This is Jennifer Legasker speaking to the filmmaker Leith Majali. Herbie and Chico are her camels, and Jennifer is a camelier. That's the term for very serious camel owners. And Jennifer, Jennifer's a serious camel owner. When we got married, uh, I came in on a camel. We wanted to do a big carnival party event. We were both animal people, both have a degree in biology. Leith was speaking to Jennifer at a meetup of around 25 cameliers in the Mojave Desert, about a three-hour drive east of Los Angeles, where I live, actually. And some of them had driven for miles to be there in their own custom-built camel trailers. Yeah, just kind of like horses. They have, uh, you know, they have their custom-made kind of trailers, yeah. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. But what attracted me so much to the camel tribe, as we like to call ourselves, is the warmth and welcomeness that they all bring. And I love that. All the trainers and all the professionals. So as I've met the community of cameliers, uh, what fascinated me is the multiple uses <laughs> they found for camels. So you've got a big group using uh, camel milk for beauty products. Everything from uh, pills to uh, animal shampoo to human shampoo, uh, soap bars. I remember eating chocolate fudge made with camel milk. What did it taste like? Oh, it was great. I love camel milk. I don't have an issue with it. So, <laughs> so it, it was just, it was good. You've also got the people who use camels in movies, people who rent them out to use in nativity plays, people who work in zoos, circuses. Laith is not a cameleer, but for the past few years, he's been following the trail of a camel expedition that was once led by a man that went by the name Hajali back in the 1850s. Hajali is a name you've likely never heard of before. And yet he was one of the first people from the Middle East or North Africa to emigrate to the United States. And for someone who was so new to a country, Hajali definitely left his mark. And for that reason, there's kind of a war of narratives in the MENA region about where exactly he comes from. The Greeks claim him as a Greek. The Turks claim him as a Turk, uh, since he was an Ottoman subject. But the letters that I found in the archives all mention a Bedouin man. I saw that the name Al-Hajaya uh, was attached to him as a, as a tribal name. And Al-Hajaya is a tribe that comes from the south of what is now Jordan, from an area called Al-Gatrana. So that town is, you know, maybe 30 kilometers from where I'm from in Jordan, which is Karak, a big city in the south. So I was like, ah, maybe, maybe some of my ancestors have met Al-Hajali. And, you know, that kind of started uh, a really <laughs> long kind of detective style research where I was really looking for who this man was. This investigation has taken him to all kinds of unexpected places, Arizona to Texas and really all over the United States. And what Leith has found is kind of this alternative history of America, of Arabs in America, all wrapped up in the story of camels. It's a wild story, so saddle up. <laughs> so corny, but I think we should leave it. I'm Dana Balut, and this is Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa, and the spaces in between. Oh, this is from Beirut. Oh,
is predictable, they've seen it happen. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. This whole journey for Leith started with a guy who's kind of the godfather of the modern camel scene in the United States. But let me introduce you to a couple of my friends. This is Richard. He's one of our families. He's the one who was supervising the trek in the Mojave. His name is Doug Baum, also known as the Camel Whisperer. And we've also got Bactrian camels, the kind with two humps. Look, here's Shion right here. Shion's got two humps. I started working with camels in the spring of 93, really at the same time that Trish and I had our first child, Vanessa. And so I became a father and a camel trainer at the same time and uh, learned through a lot of uh, sometimes patience that uh, the two disciplines are actually kind of similar, but uh, fell in love with the camels. Doug, Doug has a fair complexion, blondish hair, uh, tall, uh, farmer. So, you know, he's he's someone who works in the land and, and takes care of, of his plot. He speaks multiple languages, including Arabic, uh, by experience, more than by studying, I'd say. You know, very well read. Maybe on, on a first glance, you'd have a stereotype of of who this person is just because of how he looks, how he dresses, what he does, maybe. But what I love about Doug is as you keep on peeling the onion, the layers and layers, you just discover more and more about him. The first layer of that onion is that Doug started to get involved with camels in Nashville, Tennessee, back in the 1990s. I'd been working as a zookeeper and uh, had moved to Nashville to play music and needed a day job. He used to be a drummer in Nashville. So he used to be a professional drummer, but kind of moved into the camel world because he was working at a zoo. At the old Nashville Zoo, and and I ended up working with primates for about five months. Uh, As a side job, and the zoo brought camels in, and he was the one who was handling them and fell in love with it. I've always wanted to work with elephants, and there was no opportunity to, uh, to do that at the time. I thought, yeah, camels would be the next best thing. Doug said he sees himself as a kind of champion of the underdog. And to him, camels are an underdog. The camels are horribly misunderstood. Everybody sees the camel, uh, laypersons, see the camel as a a nasty, mean animal that bites and spits. And that's only true of the camels that do that. But it's certainly not true of every single camel on the planet. And after he'd been working with camels at the zoo for some time, he had this idea that camels could really work well in animal therapy, kind of like horse therapy if you've ever seen it, which is when he left the zoo and started working with a residential treatment program for at-risk youth called Vision Quest. I had hundreds of kids, and I can remember almost every single one because each one of them had a very individual relationship with a camel. And anyway, that's a whole other story. The point is, Doug is seen as this kind of pioneer in the camelier community in America. This is Lauren again, one of the people on that Mojave trek. Being around Doug makes me excited for history and camels. He's a, a self-taught anthropologist, a musician, incredible with camels, a historian, a storyteller. When you're around him, you are just captivated by his knowledge of a place. I love Doug. He Some years ago, Doug realized that he could use camels as a way for people to learn about their own or other people's history in the United States, which is the reason they were all there. 
this trek. It is a special occasion in the Camelier calendar, and no camel trek with Doug is ever complete without a bit of camel folklore. We had just finished dinner. Everyone was sitting in a area of this camp uh, that is, is made kind of for food or kind of like small events. I'm going to sing and I'm going to juggle. <laughs> That's and all we need to see. I'm going to saw you in half and it'll be fine. Once everyone sat down, Doug got up and started to tell them the story. So uh, welcome out. My name's Doug Baum. I own Texas Camel Corps. Doug is a fantastic storyteller. So why don't we pick up with High Jolly? Uh, High Jolly is, um, for those of you who don't know, this is a, broadly speaking, a Middle Eastern gentleman who was brought here uh, in the 1850s to work with recently imported camels. In the late 1840s, the U.S. had newly colonized this huge stretch of land between what is now the state of Louisiana and the Pacific Ocean. Now, it's really important to understand in a, a timeline of history, we're talking about a period of time that predates the Civil War. So when you see... The- there were no railroads or cars at this point, but as the colonists expanded west, they started looking for a more efficient way to travel across the land, which was largely arid and dry. They needed a beast of burden. This is Arizona State historian Mr. Marshall Trimble. A lot of that area was waterless. Um, you could go 40 miles without water. Ordinarily, they would have used horses or mules, but they wouldn't get very far in the heat without water. These lands were completely barren. There could be days of travel between one water stop and another. This is something that mules and horses couldn't do. So they decided that the solution to their problem could maybe be camels. So in 1853, the American Secretary of War at the time, this guy called Jefferson Davis, pitched Congress this idea to spend $30,000 on camels from the Middle East. It took two years for Congress to approve the budget, and eventually they did. So then in 1855, the plan was greenlit, and the experiment became known as the United States Camel Corps. That summer, a group of representatives from the American government stepped on board a ship called the USS Supply, kind of like a camels-only Noah's Ark. And uh, the ship had a mission to travel to the Mediterranean and the Middle East and come back with $30,000 worth of camels. They traveled all over. First stop was in Italy, no camels in Italy. Then to Tunis, where they bought, you know, a handful of camels. Then to Malta and Egypt, picking up a camel here, a camel there. But the Americans, they didn't even know how to handle these camels. Their temperament was totally different than the mules and the horses that they were used to back home. Camels were very temperamental. They did not seem to like Americans any better than Americans like them. (laughs) It's funny. Eventually, they landed in the Ottoman port of Smyrna, modern-day Turkey. And this is where they met three young camel handlers. One of them was called Hajali. And they couldn't really pronounce his name very well, so... And didn't roll off the uh, American's tongue very easily, so when they tried to pronounce it, they, they talk, it sounded like Hajali. And so that's what he became. But his name is really Haji Ali. Hajali, Hajali. Here's Doug Baum again. 
we're told that High Jolly greets these uh, American soldiers who in the 1850s show up in what's now modern-day Turkey, but the broader Ottoman Empire, and they're, they're buying camels. And they say, we're here to buy camels. And High Jolly says, America doesn't have camels? What kind of backward place is this? <laughs> I love that, even if it might not be exactly true. Either way, Hajali was a talented camel whisperer, and these American government people knew nothing about keeping camels. So they hired him and a group of other people from Smyrna to come back with them to the U.S. On February 15, 1856, they set sail from Turkey with 33 camels on board, along with a load of hay and oats to keep them well-fed on their trip back. The writer Gary Nebhan said it was the longest trip ever taken by any camel in history and the furthest Hajjali had ever been from home. They arrived uh, in, uh, in the United States, and the first boat landed with 34 camels. One had died along the way, and two camels were born. So they had a knit gang of one on that first trip. And they would come a year later with another boatload with 41 camels. So that made up the original camel herd, just under 100 camels. Haj Ali, or at this point, Hai Jolly, and his team spent the next few years training the camels, and he loved working with them. He had a special talent for it. He was, a, I guess we call him today, a camel whisperer. He just had this knack of communicating the camels. Camels, he loved the camels, and the camels loved him. One person who had seen him work wrote at the time, moving quietly among the restless animals, he speaks to them, reassuring them placating them, as a mother would speak to a fretful child. Then, in the summer of 1857, part of the herd were picked out to be taken on a trek west towards California. The expedition was to be led by Hajali and a Navy lieutenant called Edward Beale, and they wanted to use the camels from the Camel Corps experiment because they thought they'd be the best fit to navigate the difficult and dry terrain. Their goal was to scout out a wagon route from New Mexico to the eastern edge of California, a little over a thousand miles. The California Historical Society Quarterly, a publication at the time, had a short account about the journey, and it read, Navy Lieutenant Edward Beale had driven his camels more than 1,200 miles in the heat of the summer through a barren country where feed and water were scarce, and over high mountains where roads had to be made in the most dangerous of places. He had accomplished what most of his closest associates said could never be done. But it could be done, and it was done, with the help of the right animals. This route that they carved out became one of the most famous roads in America. Well, if you ever plan to motor west... Route 66. Jack, take my way, it's the if you overlaid a map of today's Route 66 with the Camel Corps' tracks, the two roads line up exactly from Albuquerque to the Pacific Ocean. It's quite amazing. Get your kicks on Route 66. And it's a route that was created by camels. I love this. So Beale moves across New Mexico into what's now Arizona, truly unknown country. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Spoiler alert, he does in fact make it to California. And we have Route 66. This is the legacy of the camels. And it doesn't stop with Beale. That's in 57. In 59 and 60, again, three, four. 
So this story, the legend of Hajj Ali, is how Laith found himself at this desert camp in the middle of the Mojave Desert in California in the company of American cameliers to trace the wagon tracks that Hajj Ali had carved out more than 170 years ago. So Doug made a very kind introduction <laughs> to me and then uh, I just spoke a little bit about the project, why I was doing it, how, how long I've been doing it. And one gentleman in, in the crowd basically raised his hand and asked me... Uh, I have a question. Yes, sir. Did I hear you write that your last name was Jolly? You're not related to Hajj. <laughs> close, close. Close by, Majali. Is that a common name? He m- must have misheard my, my family name, Majali, and he thought it was Jolly, and he thought I was related to, to Hi Jolly. But Hi Jolly is how I ended up with this story, because one of the uh, theories, one of the theories out there is that Hi Jolly is a Bedouin from potentially the south of Jordan, which is where I'm from, and I'm exploring that theory with some people in the region too. So that even makes it more personal for me. But I had to explain to him that, you know, we were just, maybe, maybe if, if that origin story is true, then he could have been from a home, from, from a town not too far from my hometown. You know? <laughs> so that's my closest potential relationship to, to, to High Jolly, but no, not the same family, potentially the same area, yeah. Hi. Okay, that's funny. I've been on his trail for five years, and his spirit kind of lives in a lot of people in this community, and uh, it's just been a brilliant journey. And hopefully, this is the third location where maybe I cross paths. Maybe we'll see the ghost of High Jolly. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah Thank like you, that. everyone. Thank you. They went to bed that night and woke up early the next morning to get ready for the first day of the trek. Corey, can you just clap for me right here? No, just clap. Just clap. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Before we uh, we sat on the first walk, it's funny, there was a little tradition where there's a... Yeah, rite of passage, little, you know, pay to the desert gods. A little pot under a Joshua tree, and you're supposed to throw a penny in it. All right, um, okay. With intention. <laughs> make a little prayer to the desert and uh, hope for a safe journey. Uh, but does the penny have to go into the pot? Yeah, it's just a little pot. No, you just uh, drop it in. It's and, not like you know, a... No, no, it's not like a throw. No, no, no. <laughs> you don't make it. <laughs> You'll get the snakes if you don't make it. <laughs> you know, after breakfast, we headed out. Yeah, so we're going to move about 12 miles west uh, to a place that's got a beautiful photo op. It's a, a water hole in a cool rocky canyon. It's like 12 miles uh, from here. Trucks, trailers, everything. Camp is broke. Everything rolls west, and we'll unload there, and we'll start making about a 10-mile movement back east just to get some... You know, it's full of Joshua trees full of cacti, uh, it's a desert terrain, uh, but you don't see dunes. It's not kind of a desert with dunes. It's, it's, it's more of a dry, uh, dry beds. Uh, again, lots of, lots of cacti. Very similar, again, to the, to, to the terrain in the south of Jordan. The group did this every day for four days. I think, yeah, we averaged, you know, maybe a four or five miles uh, a day. At night, they'd gather at their campsite and play music. I got the camel riding blue. I swear, my butt cheeks hurt all day. Oh, yeah. I got them camel riding blues. My butt cheeks, they hurt all day. Until finally, on the last day of the trek, 
They came to the spot Leith had been waiting to see. So what's to our right, Doug? No. What's to our right up there? Good Lord, I'm looking at the wagon tracks of the 1857 Beale Expedition. High Jolly's feet were on that path right there. Uh, the wagons, the uh, horses, the mules. So here they were, after camels. four days of this trekking. Their camel expedition half, right? was finally walking on the same Train. ground that Hajadi's camels had more than 150 years ago. I realized the importance of having a figure like uh, High Jolly. This an importance to having an early footing in a place like America. To know that we've been part of this country's existence and making since at least 1857. Because, you know, High Jolly directly relates to Route 66, which is an American icon. You know, it's one of the most famous highways in the world. And it's a route discovered by camels and High Jolly and Beale. Of course, it's always credited to Beale, but I bet you if this Bedouin was not with them, uh, they wouldn't have survived that five-month journey, you know. It just adds to the sense of, of maybe belonging to a place and, and, and working towards making it better, you know, uh, especially in these times, after the, the years we've had to go through recently, uh, to be able to say, hey, we've been part of making this place what it is, uh, and is important, you know. the camp, looking west. Quite hazy, and I've got a range of the Mojave Mountains silhouetted against the haze of the setting sun. It was quite a successful trip, I think, and uh, it was a great experience for me. Today, especially, we uh, at one point got really close to what would have been the road that. Hi Jolly, Hajj Ali, and Edward Beale would have been on as they headed towards Los Angeles in 1857. Uh, you know, there's a third place that I get to intersect with the footsteps of uh, Hi Jolly. You know, my search continues for the story of uh, who this man was. You know, for now, I thank you for uh, listening and signing off from the Mojave Desert. Not long after Hajj Ali's trek to California in 1857, the U.S. Army's Camel Corps retired. The Civil War started, and the train came along. And even though the camels proved successful in their mission, the U.S. Army ended up selling the camels to whoever would take them. Hajali, Hajali, is said to have kept a few himself. Hajali left the Army in 1870 and got married 10 years later. In his wedding photo, he's wearing a three-piece suit with pushed-back hair, a thick mustache, and, of course, cowboy boots. That same year, he became an American citizen and lived out the rest of his life in the United States. But it wasn't necessarily a happy ending for him. 
he dies penniless. He dies uh, with not much to his name, uh, estranged from his wife and kids. Uh, and I even found a plea in a newspaper called the Arizona Republican, dated September 21st, 1901, titled, Deserves a Pension, a former government servant who needs assistance now. And it talks about Hajj Ali and his story and how he uh, basically wasn't registered correctly in the army. So he never get a pension he never got a pension plan. The the article ends with with this quote. If this be true and it is within the power of any citizen of the territory to help him, that favor should be tendered him. For High Jolly was one of the men that made Arizona fit to live in. He died in Quartzsite, Arizona in 1903. And a few decades later, the town built a memorial for him on the side of the road. It's a pyramid, about eight or nine feet tall, with a meadow camel on top and a plaque at the bottom. So the plaque on his grave in Quartzsite, Arizona reads, The last camp of High Jolly, born somewhere in Syria, about 1828, died at Quartzsite, December 16, 1902. Came to this country February 10th, 1856. Camel driver, packer, scout. Over 30 years, a faithful aide to the U.S. government. Arizona Highway Department, 1935. Jolly was a camel driver long time ago. Followed Mr. Blaine on way out west. He must have been such a character and, and such a man to be able to to one traverse three months on the ocean, come live in a in the wild west, deal I'm sure with a lot of racism and, and being looked down upon, contribute, live a life, change his name, build a family. And you know, we're still talking to about him today. Old timers out in Arizona tell you that it's true. You can see high jolly's ghost traveling still. When the desert moon is bright, he comes right through the night, leading four and twenty camels across the hill and singing. After the break, we'll link up with Doug again, but this time in Egypt. So a couple of months after we recorded with Doug, he reached out to us to tell us he was going on a trip to Egypt. In addition to Doug doing camel treks in the U.S., he also takes Americans to camel treks across the Middle East to places like Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, etc. These trips, they help Americans better understand Arab and African countries. Other than doing uh, trips and treks in uh, the U.S. and especially in Texas, uh, Doug, for many years, uh, has been leading trips to uh, places like Jordan, Egypt, Morocco. Uh, he, I know he's done Kenya, Mongolia. And he does these trips, which, you know, they're, they're touristic trips. But what's special about them is that he's established these relationships, these close ties with families in these countries, mostly 
families that deal with camels. And he's used that as a form of education for himself, but also as a form of having people who join him on these trips get a chance to experience life in these countries the way people live uh, on the ground. So you're not staying in fancy hotels. You're not running around in big uh, buses with big tour groups. No, you're actually staying in the homes of people. And uh, it gives a... It gives his trips quite a different perspective. I always tell my tour groups, look, I know you've probably got a bucket list. Uh, you, you've wanted to see the pyramids since you were a kid. And the pyramids are incredible, but they will be the least incredible thing you see when I take you to Egypt. And I tell them that. And I say, look, if the pyramids are the highlight of your trip, you should ask for your money back. Because they're incredible, but they're the least incredible thing. And 100% of the time, my guests will tell me that the highlight of their trip was meeting this lady at the bus station or this fellow who sat down with us at a, at a restaurant. It'll always be a human. It'll always be somebody real. And it'll be usually some surprise interaction that you never even saw coming. And what's even more interesting is when he comes back to his town, which, you know, it's a small town, I wouldn't say maybe a thousand people. He comes back and tells them all of these stories about his travels, whether it's in Egypt, Morocco, Kenya, Kazakhstan. The guy's been everywhere because of a choice he made to take camels as, as the animal of choice, you know. So a couple months after his trek in California, Doug reached out to tell us that he'd be visiting Egypt soon with a group of Americans. And did we want to come to a wedding that he was taking them all to? I have known the groom since he was nine years old. He's now 27. Uh, he's more than family. He's, he's as close to me as my own family. So we asked our colleague, Heba Afifi, to go along and record. He didn't give us much more detail, except to say that um, there would be camels. I have never felt more welcomed anywhere on the planet than I have in Egypt. And one of the first people she spoke to when she arrived was one of Doug's guests, Michelle. Uh, Michelle is from Texas, and it was her seventh time in Egypt with Doug. I have just been welcomed and treated with incredible hospitality every time. You've teared up a little bit telling me what these trips mean to oh, you. Yeah. Why, why is yes, that? Yes, yes. These trips have made my life immeasurably richer. My life is better for the people that I meet and the experience. I'm going <laughs> to tear up again immeasurably richer and better for the experiences I've had and the people I've met. And I have friends all over the place now that wouldn't have not happened, and they make my life better. And after everyone arrives, it was time for the bride and groom's grand entrance on, you guessed it, Camelback. We'll just let Hiba take it from here. Okay, so now the carriage, whoa. The carriage uh, carried by the camel is almost ready now. It looks pretty huge, so like it's uh, almost, it's I think taller than the camel itself. Draped in these beautiful red drapes and then they've attached some balloons to it and there are lights inside of it. I'm a bit scared for the bright and green. Bride and groom are in the carriage now, and I think the camel is about to lift off. I think the bride looks a bit scared, as I would be. 
Oh my god. <laughs> the carriage. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. It does, oh my god, it does not look stable. <laughs> oh my god, I think it's gonna fall. Okay, so oh my god, no. <laughs> someone someone is having similar feelings to me and just praying that they make it in one piece. <laughs> Oh my god, the carriage is like violently swaying from right to left. It's really scary. Quickly, before we go... This one's called Hajali. Earlier in the episode, we played a song about Hajali that was recorded in the 1960s. But today, we wanted to bring you an updated version of it. So, just for you, we asked Kerning Cultures' very own Ahmad Ashur to rewrite it as our very own tribute to Hajali. We hope you enjoy it. Hi Jolly was a camel driver, a Pakaranus scout. He teardropped his way, way out west. He didn't mind the burning sand in Arizona desert lamp. He didn't mind his camel friends the best. Aw, he loves his camel friends. Okay, we're gonna do the chorus now. <laughs> Hajj Ali, ya Ali, couldn't pronounce your name, ya Ali, couldn't pronounce the Ain and Laman, ya. Hajj Ali, hey, are gonna be okay, you'll always be a legend, that is that. <laughs> okay, that was actually a lot of fun. <laughs> This episode was produced by Laith Majali, Alex Atak, and me, Dana Balut, with editorial support from Anastasia Campbell, Zena Duwidar, and Nadine Shakir. Fact-checking by Dina Sabri and sound design by Mohamed Khrezat, Sara Kaduri, and Alex Atak. A very special thanks to our managing producer for Arabic, Heba Afifi, for her help in recording this wild wedding in Cairo. You can see some of Laith's amazing photos from the U.S. camel community on his Instagram page, at El Majali, L-M-A-J-A-L-I. We'll also put him up on our Instagram at Kerning Cultures. And we will be back next week.